I think one of the interesting things I've realised is the novelty of it and that people are very curious about it. What What is this? This is such a, such a departure from what we're used to. When people first see it, it looks a little out of the ordinary. People also think, you know, it looks like Frankenstein goop. We're going to ask people if they would like to taste it. What does it taste like? It tasted exactly the same. You mean it tastes good? Yeah, so you get out what you put in. If you start with good ingredients, you'll get out the same thing. It ultimately reimagines food culture. Yes, that's right. Totally. Technology has always informed our relationship with food, from knives and forks to the microwave oven. But one technology has the power to completely reshape food as we know it, and that's the 3D food printer. Today on the show, you'll learn how we 3D print food. We're creating a replicator, kind of like you see in Star Trek, back in those old movies. Who this food is for. It's about variety and keeping good, nutritious foods available. And why we're cutting the human out of the kitchen. You know how there's that saying, there's love in the food. Do you feel the love in 3D printed food? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Um... This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm at the Protospace, an underground lab at the University of Technology, Sydney. The Protospace is home to a whole range of 3D printers. Some are large glass boxes, with the wiring and gears visible inside. Others are a little more meek, with operators hovering over them. But the most recent addition is the one I'm looking at, with Professor Bronwyn Hemsley. I'm standing in front of a Foodini creator, as it's got written on the front. What does this device actually do? Well, as you can see, it looks a little bit like a large microwave. It's designed to print puree food. For this device to print, the ingredients need to be pureed. Then the puree is placed into canisters that sit on the inside of the printer door. Think of them like your ink cartridges. On the door, there's five canisters. And what happens is when you shut the door, the printing cartridge will be pulled out of the door and put into the middle of the print area and it will print in layers. So it starts to print the food at the bottom and then it builds up the layers as it comes up. What excites Bronwyn about this is that you can print your food in whichever way you like. You can choose the shape that you want it to print. So on the front of it, it has an interface for the user to use, a bit like an iPad at the front. And on this device, there are a bunch of preset designs to choose from. So this one, for example, Cactus Pots, has three ingredients. Hummus, black olive paste and guacamole. It looks like six little cactus plants in little tiny pots. So the hummus makes the little pot, the olive paste makes the soil, and then the avocado makes the cactus. And so what you could do if you have these ingredients, essentially watch in real time as these little pots are being made. Yes, exactly. But there's more than cactuses to choose from. There's also ones that look like any shape, like dinosaurs or a fish with the fish bones. 
one of the people who would like to taste the food has already chosen they would like a yellow gecko to taste. So we will be able to sort of say to people, what shape would you like, um, and see what they think of it. While 3D printers are becoming more widespread in industry, engineering and architecture, many see printing food as a foreign concept or a gimmick. One of the reasons why it's still kind of a a gimmick is because, again, you don't have this ability to actually cook the food that you print. This is Jonathan Blutinger. Jonathan's research looks at using lasers to cook printed food. By actually cooking with the lasers, you can do a lot in terms of texturization just by changing the wavelength, just by changing the power, the speed of which you pass a laser over a piece of food, you can get browning versus baking or grilling versus broiling. You're able to have a lot, lot more control over what actually cooks, what doesn't. These lasers are built into the 3D food printer Jonathan is using, which means he can get creative or stupid. You could even you know, brown your face into your food, into your piece of chicken if you'd like. <laughs> Your own face, you mean? <laughs> exactly. We've kind of replicated grill marks on a piece of chicken and, you know, some other foods. But, you know, who's to say if you wanted your name or a face of someone, you know, a celebrity you like on your piece of food, why not? You know, it's the lasers have the ability to kind of control the heat to millimeter resolution. Unlike an oven, which kind of cooks or heats an entire area at all once. You have a laser, which you control with mirrors. And those mirrors are, you know, basically software controlled. And you can, you know, get a lot more ease of control over where the heat actually goes. While the technology is becoming more sophisticated, Jonathan points out it can be pretty hit or miss. Why would some foods be more printable than others? That's kind of the great mystery. Um, The consistency we want to aim for when we're printing food is something close to a peanut butter or cream cheese. Something that acts like a solid But as soon as you apply a force downward, for example, when you're trying to push it through a nozzle, it flows like a a liquid, like butter, for example, or margarine. In that way, we're trying to find ingredients that kind of mimic the same behavior. But even after you pulverize something to the consistency you want, it doesn't always work out. Believe it or not, vegetables are actually a lot harder than you'd think to print uh, because they have such a high water content. And you think, you know, high water is actually good, but you run into this issue where you can't really process it to the right amount. Right. So you might have an expectation for something to work and then comes out as the goopy stuff. Correct. Yeah. So finding kind of the right consistency and combination of materials is, 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 kind, of the, is kind of the trial and error part. Playing around with food, food printers and lasers Jonathan says is a lot of fun. But the question remains, why 3D print food? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Um, People who haven't heard this before, they kind of ask the same thing, you know, what problem are you really solving? And the short answer is we're not really solving a problem. The analogy we like to use is it's kind of like Apple in 2009. They weren't really solving a problem when they came up with the iPhone. These are not... Three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today. But as soon as this really cool, innovative technology came out, people couldn't really see a life without it. 
you know, you've seen this with the digitization of music with iTunes and Spotify. Now it's something that everybody kind of has on their phones, everyone listens to all the time. This kind of software approach to invading different domains hasn't really happened for, for food in the kitchen. So we're really curious to see what happens and how people take this technology and apply it to their daily lives when they're making meals in the kitchen. Bronwyn Hemsley, however, has a different take. She believes 3D food printing could solve a range of problems for people with swallowing disorders. There's people with a swallowing disorder that arises after they have an acquired health condition like a stroke or Parkinson's disease or motor neuron disease or dementia. Or they might have trouble swallowing if, they've, if they don't have any teeth and they're older. There's another group who've had swallowing disorders for a longer time like most of their lives and there might be people with cerebral palsy or intellectual disability or Down syndrome, different conditions that affect their eating. This difficulty to swallow is called dysphagia. And for many who experience this, they follow a puree diet. This softens the food, making it easier to digest. The thing is, if you can't manage to swallow food safely, you're at risk of it going the wrong way into your lungs or causing you to choke, and that can be fatal. But a puree diet has a number of long-standing problems. One is that it doesn't always look appetizing. It's usually ice cream-sized lumps of food that seep into each other on the plate. Bronwyn adds this is often made worse by comments from other people. Often people who need a puree meal also need a support worker or a person assisting them to eat the food. And they don't necessarily help the person to view that food as being attractive. So it might be making comments on the side like, oh, that's, that's not very nice, or that looks awful. We do see that when people uncover the plate and have a reaction. Not only can puree food affect someone's appetite, but also their nutrition. When you're on a puree diet, you often have your food watered down a little bit because you need the liquid to make it the pureed texture. So, for example, meat, if you need it pureed, it has to be pureed with some liquid. So that's why the nutrition gets a little bit watered down. Bronwyn sees 3D food printing as a tool, offering people with swallowing disorders a more inclusive experience with their food. They can engage over what the food looks like and what is it. Another thing is that a lot of people have choking incidents and problems swallowing at celebrations because culturally they go to a Christmas party or a birthday party and, and really it's important for them to take part in that cultural event by eating the foods and unfortunately that's when the choking happens and people have died because of this. So potentially one of the most exciting things is people could still be part of the special occasion and still have birthday cake and still have things that look like nuts or look like biscuits. Bronwyn is not only researching 3D printed food as an alternative, but whether or not the technology itself is user-friendly. Were these technologies designed for people with swallowing disorders in mind or was it researchers like you who've seen the capacity here? It really all started with the people developing 3D printers realised, yes, they could print food and then decided, oh, this could help people with swallowing disorders. Because it came as an afterthought, Bronwyn says there are still a lot of important questions that need answering. 
There is no research yet on the safety of 3D food printers. For example, if parts of the machine fall into the food or food contamination. But also how long it takes to print. Compared to just making a simple puree mush, that might take minutes. But the processing could take an hour. Because in essence, there are three steps and potentially two to three technologies that you'd need to have. You'd need to puree the food first, print it, and then cook it, which sounds like it could take a lot of time. Well, also, you might have to cook it first. For example, pumpkin and potato, very good foods for pureeing, although potato can become quite gluey. But yes, you might have to microwave and cook the food first and then process it. Um, So... If people are losing an hour of time to create something attractive, they would see that as impacting on their workflow for the day. You also have to clean out the canisters, which Bronwyn identifies could be a problem, as some with swallowing disorders also have physical difficulties with their hands. You'd have to clean the device the same as any other food processing device. So that's why we're really interested to see how feasible is it for people to really do this in their home. Over the next few months, Bronwyn and PhD student Rebecca Smith will be working alongside people with swallowing disorders to put the tech to the test. They'll also be gauging what should happen before these printers go to the market. We'll see what people with swallowing disorders think about this possibility of using a device and how it could impact on their life if they were to have more choice and control. And... What do they think? Would this be something they would use? Commercialising 3D food printers, Jonathan Blutinger also sees as the next step. But he and his research team are thinking even further ahead. They're looking at the possibility of food pods, like food pods that people can put into their machines to print out some food. Yes, so... In the same way that you buy an inkjet you know, cartridge for your printer when it runs out of toner, this toner would be uh, a food capsule that you'd place into one of your little food cartridges, print with it. When you're finished with it, you just recycle it or you buy more. So that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's exactly kind of the model we're looking to run with. And on top of that, a 3D food recipe list on the cloud. In the same way, you could just go on some kind of food vendor Pick out the recipes you like, and it'll give you a kind of array of different food capsules or food pods that you pop into your machine, and then you can download different recipes online. Say, for example, you're watching your favorite TV show, and then a little thing pops up on the screen and says, hey, if you'd like to print this at home, scan this QR code, and then it just starts printing on your machine as you're watching the show live. Bronwyn agrees this is a good way to keep meals fresh and interesting. You could build up a community of people who are interested and involved in 3D food printing, building up a recipe bank. That would really help because if people are getting the same foods over and over, whether they're 3D food printed or not, they might become boring. So it's about variety and keeping good nutritious foods available. The other thing is these are just the pre-stored ones. You actually get a program with the device where you can design the food yourself, your own ingredients and the shape. And so where is that on like a, it's a digital program or a software? It's a software on the laptop. You can also control it on an iPad and you literally put it into the software and it will come out 
So we think there's a lot of room for people who it's intended to help. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. Think Digital Futures is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Digital Futures wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.